This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 66. And the quote of the day is from Lillian Dixon, who said, Your life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you wish, but you can only spend it once. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I'm really, really excited about the interview today with the great Colin Bailey on the show. And for those of you who don't know, Colin is the foot technique master, if there ever is one. He wrote the bass drum control book and has also toured extensively throughout the U.S., Japan, Europe, South Africa, and Canada with Benny Goodman and George Shearing and Richie Cole and a bunch of other people. He's played with Miles Davis. who's good friends with, with Joe Morello, and he has been around for a long time and awing people with his, with his tremendous talent, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. And I'm going to get right into this interview, Mr. Colin Bailey. Colin, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really do appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. It is. It is great to have you. I've uh, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time now, and and as everybody consider you the the expert on bass drum technique, and we're going to get all into that. Uh, but first, I always like to get the backstory of my guests. Of of I know that you were born in England, um, and you started playing at the age of four. But can you just give us some insight as to how you started playing and how you got into it, and how you've amassed this this amazing career over the years? Jesus. Well, my parents t- told me I started at four. You know, I was uh, slapping the arms of the chairs. You know, they said this kid's going to be a drummer. So, right. I got a little tiny drum set when I was six. I remember that. I had my first real drum set when I was seven. My dad brought it home in a sack <laughs> <laughs> on his bicycle. How about that? Really? This is 1941. Now, you know. Right, right, right. Um, I just. Had uh, lessons briefly with a guy, played at the Playhouse, uh, which was the my, my local town's uh, you know, vaudeville theatre. Right. And he taught me how to roll, but he had a terrible, I've got all this down on the sum of somewhere. He had a terrible left-hand grip. One of the, you know, so uh, then I was taking lessons with a guy named Peter Coleman, who became a named drummer in England when I was 10. He taught me how to read. My first piece of drum music was uh, American Patrol. Remember that? Glenn Miller? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm writing so, it down, though. I'm so young, man. God. <laughs> American Patrol. Patrol. It's, it's, it's a great um, solo in there by Mo- Morris Pertell. It's like... It fits in good into the tune. Anyway, you were saying you you were playing with uh, local dance bands. Local dance bands, yeah, you know, uh, they were you know like five brass, five saxes, those kind of bands, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I just got better at it. And... So now you're talking. This was in you said the '40s and '50s when yes. you were, when you were coming up playing. So I I take it that you learned all of the traditional things that that you should learn the rudiments, how to read. Oh yeah, learning yeah. to play the snare drum and. A lot of people now don't learn all of that stuff. What's your take on that? I think people should uh, learn the rudiments, especially the paradiddles, mm-hmm. slams. I mean, those are very important to me. Those are the ones I would, you know, I not that I get many students these days, but um, uh, those are the ones I would recommend. Paradiddles, especially single paradiddle. I mean, I use it all the time in soloing. Max Roach was the first one to do that, 1951, I believe. And, uh, First one to play a paradiddle and a solo. And so yeah, dig it again. Yeah, went on top. I use it all the time in solo. I use it in various ways, and also flams. I mean, I use Mel Lewis influenced me with flams. Mm-hmm. Use them all the time in my solo, all the time. Um, so I, I would do that. Learning to read nowadays. <laughs> when do you learn? When do you read anymore? I haven't read a piece of drum music in years. Right. <laughs> you know. You, 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 if there's music now, you get a lead sheet. You don't get a real drum part. Sure. Those days are over. I don't think the people that write arrangements don't know how to write a drum part. <laughs> 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 anyway, yeah, so, you know, I was playing with 
when I was 16, I went on the road with a, a big band for a few months, five months, months, five months. One night stands, uh, it was tough, you know. <laughs> Even though I was only 16, it was really rough. Yeah. And uh, so I quit that after a while. And I think I did five months with that band. And uh, I had to get back home and uh, get my health together. And then I got my first name job in England with a commercial pianist named Winifred Atwell. She was a, a black lady from the West Indies, and she was just becoming a big star there. It was real kind of corny music, you know, <laughs> cross hands boogie. And but hey, it was a name job, man. It was right. great for me, you know, and uh, got me into the uh, loading photos. Better, you know, better touring uh, conditions. Beg your pardon? I said in better, better touring conditions. And oh yeah, oh, yeah. Christ, yeah. I mean, much better. And then, you know, uh, I played in the theater in, in, in London with her for 15 months, the Prince of Wales Theater. And um, early 55, we went to Australia. My wife of then, since past, um, went to Australia on a tour and uh, loved Australia, got back to England, hated the weather. <laughs> so we emigrated. I, I, I was playing with bands in England, you know. But I left this Winifred Outlaw, which was like a class gig in the Palladium. And I went to play this gig in Sheffield in Yorkshire with this dance band. It was much more fun than Winifred Outlaw. Boy, what a, what a place. Right. <laughs> Jesus. And then I went to play in Bristol for a year. And I went on a road with a, Simon Phillips' uncle. Oh, really? I just yeah. interviewed Simon a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, Sid Phillips, his name was a clarinet player. Uh, unlike Simon, who's a beautiful guy, Sid, <laughs> Sid was a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there were lots of funny things that happened on, on that band. Yeah. Which I, I won't want to get into because <laughs> the, the tents. You think I should say something about the tents? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about it. Oh. Well, Sid, we call him Sid the Year, you know, not very popular these days. <laughs> right. Because uh, uh, he was, man, he was cheap. Anyway, uh, we had a 32-seater bus for six guys and a girl singer. And then Sid decided it was costing too much money, so he got two vans, one for the guys and one for the instruments and a couple of other guys. So... Uh, we didn't want to afford to stay at hotels. We didn't have motels in those days. Right. This is 1958. And um, so the trumpet player said, I, I know a guy's got some tents. So we're like trying to pitch tents and we were wearing tuxedos on the gig. <laughs> we were going to one of these places like where they have RVs now, you know. Right. Call them caravans at the time. And people used to wait to see who were coming out of the tents. We come out in a tuxedo and they go... <laughs> <laughs> Thought we were insane. It happened a couple of times. Though. It was pretty funny. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, si Simon's uh, Simon knew all the guys in the band, and he knew the girl singer. I talked to him quite a few years ago now. He was like uh, just a kid, you know. And he, <laughs> was he playing then too? Simon, I have no idea. I, I doubt it. Well, how do I know? He was just a little kid, right? Probably he was. Uh, well, he didn't waste any time. <laughs> no, no, he definitely didn't. So, I mean, have you known Simon for years then? No, I, I met him. I met him somewhere. When we talked about uh, Sidney and the band. I mean, you know, guys. Uh, I haven't seen him since, but hmm. I see him on you know, people post that on Facebook. He's a fantastic drummer. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, he's playing a lot, man. I think he's more musical than a lot of the guys that play that kind of music. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's then in 1958 I emigrated to Australia, my late wife and I, and uh, to Sydney. And Winifred Outlaw was coming over there at the, at the time that I was landing there, and uh, so they offered me the gig, which lasted about nine months. Uh, so then I, I got into the studio scene there, and that's where I met Bryce Rohde, who was the uh, a piano player with a group called the Australian Quintet, which was in the States uh, for about, since what, about five years. They grew from a quartet into a quintet. Uh, they had a guy playing an oboe. You know, he was, like a, was kind of like a 
a freaky type thing. You know, people dug it though. Anyway, they went to Australia, did a concert tour, split up. So the piano player formed a quartet with me in it and the same bass player and a really good guitar player who chickened out, didn't come up. So we opened up for the Kingston Trio. Remember the Kingston Trio? You're too young, remember the Kingston Trio? They were like a, a folksy pop group, big, really big time group. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is 1960. Christ, what, what year was this? Hmm. What year am I talking about? 1960. 1960. Late, late 1960. And um, they liked our playing. We, we got on great personally. So they invited us over here to do a six weekend tour with them, opening for them. Oh, so the States. Yeah, oh, so okay. we did mess around, you know, my wife and I got a green card, what did you do in those days? And we came over, I mean, I was expecting to go back, so I was, we were spending all our money going to hear the jazz bands. We heard, first week I was in San Francisco, Miles of the, jazz, the Blackhawk. Oh, wow. Kind of groups, and I saw Jimmy Cobb in person, like, Jesus, you know. <laughs> and then uh, Vince Guaraldi, I don't know if you know Vince Guaraldi. Mm-hmm. Um, he heard me play. We did a concert uh, in San Francisco, and um, he was there with a, my other friend Molly Budwick, the bass player who was playing with Vince. And he invited me to the jazz workshop to uh, sit in with him on Monday nights. He was doing the Monday night uh, you know, jam session thing. So I went there, and he liked my playing. So he called me and offered me the gig with him. Jeez, I couldn't believe it, playing with those guys, you know. Because they were like early world-class players. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we did Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus in 1962, which was a big hit, Cast Your Fate to the Wind. You're probably too young to know all about this. It's a little bit before my time. Yeah, Cast Your Fate <laughs> to the Wind was a huge hit. Vince's income went like from 7000 a year to like 350000 Jeez. <laughs> he got audited, you know. Right. Uh and then we, we did, uh, I moved to L.A. in January of 63. Now, before you moved to L.A., um, yeah. when you were, I read somewhere that you met Joe Morello when you were in Australia, right? I did, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Joe was the biggest influence. Uh, Jimmy Cobb, too, but Joe, you know, technically. And we became great friends, man. We just got on so well together, you know? Now, how much older is Joe than you? Joe, four or five years. Okay. He was eighty-four. I think probably five years older than me. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so he was born. He was born in uh, twenty-nine. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, I was in the opening act, opening group for that for for Dave Brubeck, and. Uh, uh, I was asked, like, would you help Joe with the drums? Jesus. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Just just to touch his hand. Right. I heard, I heard this record. It's it's being put out again. It was called, uh, oh, man, Jazz Impressions of the USA. Jazz Impressions of the USA, it was called. And Joe did a solo on there called Sounds of the Loop. It, it's it's been out there, you know. People have been posting this stuff like on on Facebook and that. And he did this solo, man, with the left hand stuff. Like uh, I never heard anything like it. I, I just couldn't believe it, you know. Right. Yeah, I thought it was some kind of trick drumming, but you know, <laughs> recording stuff in those days, you know, unbelievable stuff. And then when I got to meet him and see it firsthand, so like I had the practice pad outside his door every morning, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He taught me how to do that it's a technique. You know, I'm still trying to get it right. Aren't we all? So what did what did what did he teach you? I'm I'm really interested to hear finger control, finger control technique. Mm-hmm. That was it. I mean, that's been an important part of my life. I mean, I changed my playing. You know, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it enables you to play quieter. You know, sure. A lot of drummers are too loud. I've heard guys in the jazz trio man just bash in. You got to come down in the volume. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Technique allows allows you to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did that. But when I came over here, because I saw Joe fairly often, you know, he's like, you know, watch me to uh, make sure I was doing it correctly. Uh, 
But we we had lots of fun together. We we liked to be silly, you know. He liked Brubeck went to India, you know, and they lived the Indian accent like this morning, Korean and that kind of accent. So yeah, I do it quite well, not them, but he used to like me get on the phone for, for room service. Could you send me up two bottles of good beer, please, to room six one three? He would laugh, man, he would just laugh. So we used to do that kind of stuff, you know, silly. Uh, but what what a great friend, man. I just loved him. When he died, you know, we didn't see each other that much. Mm-hmm. Lived in New York, and I live out here, you know. Uh, I actually made plans to study with him, and uh, and he ended up passing away before I got to study yeah, with him. That, that's a shame. Yeah. Apparently, his his last few years was like telling stories. Right. Instead of getting on with, pre- you know, teaching something. Sure. Sometimes that's part of it, though. It's just, you know, the hang and, and talking drums. It is. Well, I always tell stories. Because I have a lot of stories to tell, believe me. I've been around a long time. When you have, you have lots of stories. Right, right. Uh, I know about a lot of people, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, uh, came over here. Um, Vince went to Los, a- went to Los Angeles to play with Victor Feldman. I don't know if you know who Victor Feldman is. Mm-mm. God, amazing. <laughs> Get, check out Victor Feldman. He's the most wow. he's an English guy. I've never met him in England. How do you spell his last name? Feldman. Oh, Feldman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Victor. Incredible musician. Uh, He he played with Cannibal Adderley for a year in 1960 and 61. Hmm. And in 1963, when Miles had that new group, uh, uh, what was it called? Seven Steps to Heaven. Mm -hmm. You don't know that album either, probably. Yeah. Oh, no, I know that record. Anyway, 1963, that was when he had a new... Huh? You didn't know it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, well, Herbie Hancock became the piano player, but Miles wanted Victor. He loved Victor's play. I mean, Victor's the hottest piano player I ever heard, except maybe Oscar Peterson. So Miles was coming into the club every night for two weeks courting Victor for this gig, but Victor turned it down. He didn't want to go on the road anymore. You know? So... Uh, I'm sitting at home. Tony, that's when Tony Williams came in. He was like barely 16. He was like the new sensation on that on that album, you know. Right. So I'm sitting at home, and uh, on a Tuesday night, maybe Monday or Tuesday night, and the phone rang, and it was this agent named Ben Shapiro, and he said, are you working tonight? I said, no. He says, you want to play with Miles Davis? Well, you know, jeez, uh, uh, I've only been in the States like barely three years, and I said, do I be too nervous? I, I, I thought I would be too nervous to play with, with those guys, you know. Right. So my wife said, you idiot. And, you know, I hung up. I said, you idiot. You'll regret that for the rest of your life. She said, get back on the phone and call. <laughs> so I got back on the phone and they're trying to get through. And there was an emergency call for Colin Bailey. It was from Miles. <laughs> and, my, and that voice said, what's this nervous bullshit, motherfucker? Get your ass down here. <laughs> I told the guy to be too nervous. It was nervous bullshit. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went and it was uh, quite an experience. He was real nice. All the guys were very nice to me. Had you met Miles before that? No, no. no, no. Well, like, yeah, I, I met him before he, because he was coming into the club every night. Right. He kind of got me like this as a, the two drummers he might have called were both in jail for drugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So we thought, oh, I'll get that kid who's playing with Victor. So that's right. <laughs> but quite an experience playing with those guys. I'm but sure. They, Miles was really nice. He didn't play any of their new tunes like that. Me, like, you know, uh, being nervous about it. I, he played "If I Were a Bell" and all the regular tunes from the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. You know, I I did two nights. And then uh, they uh, did the first set of the third night, and then they brought Tony on. Jesus. Whew, man, he exploded. I never heard anybody play, you know, like jazz like him. And he was young then, right? You said he was, what, he was like 16? Barely 16. Just turned Wow. 16. Yeah, what happened was they had these people waiting for them to do their sound check of the club. They said, this boy is too young to be a you know, den of iniquity style thing, you know, so they wouldn't let him play. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get there, man. There's a line of people like two miles around the corner to hear this new band. So I was pretty nervous. 
and uh, I got onto the stage with my cymbal bag, and I hear some guy say, "Hey, man, that ain't Tony Williams." <laughs> <laughs> feel really good, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, mean, I got to know Tony, you know, through that, and we hung out a bit. You know, if we were on the road at the same time, uh, right? Uh, so anyway, that then I played with Victor, and I started doing studio work, and I went on the road with George Shearing, which you probably never heard of. George Shearing was a very big, uh, big time jazz group from the late forties, ooh, into the late sixties, early early seventies. Sir George. Sir, he became Sir George Shearing, <laughs> and uh, he had a quintet. It was a guitar, vibes, piano, bass, and drums. Had a beautiful sound. If you heard the sound, you, you would you know it. Yeah, it's uh, definitive sound. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so I spent two odd different years with him: '64 and then '66 or '67. And both times I left him to do a TV show in LA. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got into the studio. You know, I played with Victor and. Uh, I played with all kinds of really great jazz players in LA, you know, Hampton Halls and uh, various people you probably haven't heard of. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's great, you know. I, I, I met Joe Pass. Do you know Joe Pass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, I did 14 albums with Joe Pass. Really? Through, through the years. Did the first one in 1963. I was on his first album, 1963. I never knew that. It was called Catch Me. It was originally called Forward Pass. <laughs> the, but the, uh, the owner of the studio and the engineer and the producer said he wanted it to be called Catch Me. Well, Joe hated him. He said, Catch Me. What the fuck you Catch Me? Like, you know, <laughs> so fast, Catch Me. So he didn't like it. But anyway, it was with Claire Fisher, a guy. Uh, then I... Did Joe's second album in '64 called For Django became a really famous album, and we had a quartet: John Pisano, guitar; Jim Hewart, bass, and me. And we had that group going through the years. And uh, Joe went with Norman Granz, Oscar Peterson, in 1970. So I didn't see Joe for quite a few years, but he was becoming very famous doing those jazz at the Philharmonic tours. Mm-hmm. Norman Granz was a huge, huge promoter in jazz. I, Really big time. And uh, then in 1989, we, we got the quartet together again. We did uh, quite a few more albums. And we went to Japan a couple of times for six weeks. A wonderful, wonderful time playing. And, you know, I played with various singers, geez, you know, through the years. Right. Yeah, if you look up my, 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 my website, you'll see most of what. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on it now. I actually... Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, we had mentioned before we started about your bass, com- bass drum control books and yeah. DVDs, and I, t- I would say that that is one of your biggest passions is the is the bass drum pedal and the bass drum control. And so how did you start to develop that passion for well, that? It, how did- it, it, I always wanted to do more on the bass drum than I could do. Right. So one day when I was practicing, I discovered this slight, very slight lift of the heel enable me to get more beats in. I was never one of those guys who wanted to go with a bass drum. Right. I just like to put it in soloing. Two, one, two, three, four beats. Once in a while, a few more, but mm-hmm. basically, you know, one through four. It adds so much to the to the soloing. I can't tell you. I mean, it just expanded my repertoire as a soloist. And, uh, you know, I, I gradually got better. I went on the gig a couple of times trying to use it, and I, you know, it just went, uh, you know, <laughs> embarrassing. But I got it together, and uh, guys were coming in to, to the club to hear me play. I used to come to hear Victor because he was such a giant player. And um, they were going to the pro drum shop, Bob Yeager. Saying, man, have you heard this new cat, man? Please, the bass drum, Jesus Christ. So Jaeger asked me to write a, a book, Exercises. That was bass drum control. Hmm. So that was 1964, so it's 50 years old this year. Got a nice new picture on the cover. So yeah, I just, you were showing me that earlier. That's So That's the, is that what that is, the 50th release of it, or the 50th anniversary of the release? Yeah. What, what was that? With Joe Pass. 50 years, 50 years old. <laughs> Uh, 
But the book has been a huge success, man, forever, you know. I, said. I have it. I've gone through it. I've... Uh... It's it's definitely helped me, and I also I watched your videos on Drum Channel, and I downloaded some uh, some of the PDFs, and I've been studying some of the technique that you've been doing for a while now. So yeah, well, it's it's not for real loud playing. Like if you're in a a rock group or you know or a fusion band, you know it's it's not really the kind of technique for that. But if you want to play, you know, beats and play a little quieter, right. Uh, but yeah, that's the DVD. I, I played really well on that. Uh, I practiced my ass off for about six months to do that, though. <laughs> that's got to be a nerve-wracking experience to know that you know it's like cutting a record, but it but the but with a video camera and it's on you the whole entire time. Yeah, it didn't bother me because I'd done so much television, man. I was on. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to sub for Shawzy on the Johnny Carson show. You're probably too young for that. How old? No, are you? no, I'm 33. Oh well. I'm... But I, I mean, I remember the Johnny Carson show. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I used to yeah. sub for Ed Chauncey on there a lot for mm-hmm. about six years. So I moved out of L.A. And uh, what was I saying? Oh, damn, I've been on TV. I wasn't nervous at all. You know, I had my stuff together. So cameras never did bother me, you know. Ever since the Miles Davis thing, you haven't been nervous about it. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah I was nervous. I, I don't remember driving there or anything, you know. All right. I saw these people. I thought, oh shit, you know. And then when that guy said, "That, that ain't Tony Williams," <laughs> oh. so back to back to the DVD. You were saying that uh, yeah, you were well, nervous. Yeah, and- uh, Don Barty's idea, you know, mm-hmm. he'd, uh, he'd been thinking about it for quite a while. And at the same time, I did another really good video. I, my second book called uh, "Drum Solos: The Art of Phrasing." I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I am. Yeah, it's a great book, man. Yeah, yeah it is. Learn how to do four, you know, four, eight, whatever, in jazz drumming, solo thing. Here's the great jazz drummers, man. They always, they play in two-bar phrases, you know. That, that's what I discovered when a student came and said he had a drum solo in his chart in his, his college band. What, did, what, what should he do, <laughs> you know? Right. So I started doing stuff, and I realized that that, that was two-bar phrases. So I wrote this book. And I did, a, I did a video on it, you know, went through the whole damn book. And I've been trying to get Don to put it out ever since, you know. it's. Uh, I've done some things on them that are on YouTube, lessons. I don't know if you've seen those. I haven't. Let me, uh, um, while, yeah, we're, keep, while you're talking, I'm going to be looking this stuff up. So. Yeah, there's a friend of mine named John Exopolis. He's got a whole bunch of stuff out there on YouTube. He's a neighbor, a very good drummer, a real good friend of mine. So we did it at his house. He's got all the equipment to do it there. Hmm. And uh, it's, you know, it's like stuff from that book. Right. So, so let's let's talk about it a little bit because I think that for some reason soloing always has like this – it always has this uh, – everybody's af- afraid of it and they don't, don't – they never know what to do during the solo and – Yeah, well, that's why I wrote this book. Right. <laughs> if people have buy the book and, you know, go through it um, – and there will be links on the website for all of the stuff that we're talking about, so the so the oh, viewers yeah. can can yeah. see all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they can't see the um, the uh, art of phrasing video because it hasn't been put out there yet. But Don keeps threatening to put it on the, the, the digital downloads. On the <laughs> well, I'm I'm a good soloist, man. I've always been a good soloist because just you know you have to have you have to have some technique, really. Right. And. Uh, but know what to do, know what to play. I never know what I'm going to play when the solos come up, but I've got enough vocabulary, as it's called, to, you know, just come up with something. Right. Yeah. You so, know, I a lot of times I see younger players and they're soloing and and it seems like they don't know what to play next. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, a thinking on their feet kind of thing, but you can hear that disconnect between their ability and what they're thinking mentally. And there's always like it to me, I, I, I just feel like I hear a lot of disconnect. But then when I listen to somebody like you solo or Tony Williams or, you know, any, a, anybody else that is at your level, there's no disconnect. There's no, uh, there's yeah, you get to know what to do, you know, experience plays a part too, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but with Tony Williams, he didn't have any experience really. I mean, he was like a, he came through with Alan Dawson, was his teacher. It was a great, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Arnold Dawson. I love his playing. Um, Is that who taught Tony Williams? That's yeah, it's his final teacher. Like he's the one who like got him to play like he did. Uh, hmm. I never knew that. Yeah, uh, great drummer, Alan Dawson. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you know that's soloing. Yeah, that's. Um, I did another bass drum book, which doesn't sell very well because people just want to get the first one. Uh, it's called uh, Bass Drum Control Solos. Mm-hmm. It's, it's stuff around stuff around the drum set using you know the bass drum and the, uh, it's it's written out on the various lines you know. Right. I actually, I actually did a lot of the solos uh, recorded on the uh, Art of Phrasing book. I didn't um, record the um, the solos I written down except I did five tunes with a, with a trio: Bruce Foreman's great guitar player and uh, bass player and. Um, I did solos on on those tracks. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I what do you call the word? Jesus Christ! I can't think of the word. They're taking taking stuff down. Oh, oh, oh. I took it from from the tape onto you know onto the. Uh, oh. What overdubbing it? Oh no, not overdubbing. I can't think of the word. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Transcribed. Transcribed. If it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't know it. <laughs> I transcribed the solos to go on uh, in the book. For, for, for. I got you. I went upstairs in my drum booth and I, uh, I taped a whole bunch of stuff. It was, you know, still tape. And uh, came back down to the computer and I took the stuff that I, I liked and put that on there. You know, <laughs> right. That's how I did that. So, um, so outside of outside of the book, we obviously want people to go and and buy the books. Um, you know, especially the bass drum control book and the soloing book. What it, what advice do you have for for people that are stuck with their soloing and they they can't figure out you know new and creative ways to to solo and and don't feel like they know what they know what to do during a solo? Well, you know what? It, it, all you got to do is listen to to listen to Philly Joe Jones was the best fours player. That I ever heard, big influence on me. Mm-hmm. You know, Roy Haynes, Jimmy Cobb, those guys, they know how to play. You know, I mean, Philly Joe influenced so many drummers with his, with his fours and eights and stuff. Don't give up your day job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, a, that's sick, but I, <laughs> I don't ever tell people that. <laughs> Except for me, I, I'm going to become a box boy at Safeway. There you go. You're going to stop playing. No. <laughs> if I couldn't play the drums, I'd rather be dead. Yeah, me too. I'm 80, man. I love it as much as I ever did. Yeah, that's great, man. I, You know, I've been I've been playing anywhere near as long as you have, but I've been playing for many years, and, and I still feel the same way. I'm like a, a kid at Christmas every time I get behind the drum kit. Yeah, me you too. Know? Well, you know, it's been a horrible year for me. The fact that I haven't been able to play. Yeah. I play, play with really great players when I play in clubs and that, you know, and uh, concert things. But, you know, but I'm going to say in the last, Octo- last October, the Montreal Drum Fest, in fact, there's a nice clip of me on YouTube of that Montreal Drum Fest. There's a clip. 15 minutes solo. That's pretty good. So you were saying um, that this year you said it's been rough on you because you haven't been playing. I'm to play. I mean, I always get to play. Not a lot because there's not that many places to play anymore. Right. I play mostly in L.A. and, you know, uh, California. But the Montreal uh, Drum Fest was really great. I was a featured drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ralph D'Angelo, or Leo was his name. Uh, it was nice. Tommy, I said that there's a video on uh, on YouTube with that. Yes, there is. Yeah, awesome. I'm gonna Montreal Drum Fest, October of last year, and I'll link to that uh, on the website as well, so all the people can check it out. Yeah, well, there is a link to it on the website. Okay. Okay, I'll put it on the on the Drummers Resource website as well, so everybody can check that out. Okay. Also, last year, uh, end of July into August, we went to Brazil. Then I played down there, did some master classes. Had a fantastic time, and I'm so popular down there, man. Through bass drum control, all the drummers know me. No, I am. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. Every drummer should know who you are. Well, you can go into an American city, man. 
you don't find my book in, a, in, a, in a, either a drum shop or a music store. Um, Colin who? <laughs> That's but, but in Brazil, they all know me. This was, I think I should move there. <laughs> but that, that was a great experience. I, I thought I would bring that up. Uh, I love Brazilian music. Man. I just, me too. But you can never get that feel, man. You've got to be born in Brazil to get that da, 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 that feel, man. Mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. tried, you know, but I don't have enough time left now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a, uh, you know, a cultural thing and something that oh, you're, you're born Absolutely. with, you know. There's some, there's some incredible drummers down here. Have you ever seen Kiko Freitas? No. Oh, man, he's on YouTube. You've got to see this guy. He's an awesome drummer. Kiko Freitas? Yeah, F-R-E-I-T-A-S. K-I-K-O. He's got quite a few things on, on YouTube. I'm, a, I'm writing all this stuff down. I love, uh, I'm getting yeah. all this knowledge from you, and I'm just, I have a notepad next to me, and everything's getting by scribbled the, by down. By the way, I don't know if you've looked at my, uh, my wall on, on Facebook. I posted this solo of Buddy, 1967. He's still in a band from L.A. in those days, not the, the young kids who he yelled at on the bus. But he played them. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny. That's oh, a, yeah, geez. Those days. Well, he got these kids on the road for like 250 a week you know, right. in a hotel. So he got really dumb players, and they were screwing up. So, you know, he wasn't used to that. But this solo, he plays the fastest single strokes I've ever heard of. It's just insane. I can't remember what the name of the song was, but it's 1967. God. I'm to check it out. Yeah. I, I knew Buddy fairly well for a, for a period there, like 1968 time. I saw him quite a bit. And I'll tell you one of my uh, funny stories about him. Uh, <laughs> I was playing with Benny Goodman's band. I don't know if you ever heard of Benny Goodman. Absolutely. Uh, big band. We were going to Las Vegas. Uh, very end of December, New Year's, like into January, we were there for three weeks, three shows a night. So Buddy was playing with Harry James Band, the Flamingo, which was next to where we were playing. So we were rehearsing for two days, and uh, after the first day's rehearsal, we went out for, for dinner. So after that, we went across to hear Harry James Band, you know, me to hang out with Buddy, man, just to be around him was a thrill for me, you know. Right, right, right. So Buddy said to me, he said, what time are you guys rehearsing the boys? I like to hear the band. I said, oh, 10 o'clock. He said, fuck, I wouldn't get up there that early to hear me play. It would have the boss to say that. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny, man. That's, I wouldn't get that's... up that early to hear me play. <laughs> Shit, man. I, just, I went right into my brain, you know. I thought it was the most incredible. It's like Shakespeare to me, that was. Right. Was he, was, uh, did you know Buddy well? I, I, I spent some time around him uh, in Vegas and in L.A. Right. various times. And uh, he was on a TV show I was in the band on. And he played on my drums, man. Jesus. Uh, I didn't want to dust him off or anything after that. Uh, <laughs> but was he, was he nice or was he just a jerk? Well, he, no, he was great to me. He was yeah, really yeah. nice to me. And, you know, I told him, I said, buddy, I know you hear this all the time. But I said, you just kill me, man. I said, what an inspiration, you know. He said, thank you, man. Thank you. So, you know, a lot of people say, uh, you, you take it the wrong way. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but Dean was great, man. Well, that's good. That's, that, gives, that gives me a little bit of, uh, of saving grace with him, you know. Yeah, well, he could be... He was on this TV show, man. Like, Buddy used to stay up all night and get up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. This TV show, the rehearsal was 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he didn't want to be there, you know. Right. And he was a bit, uh, a bit salty. So they, they said to him, "Buddy, do you have any charts?" Ah, fuck no. I just play the blues and take some fours. Do you know? Um, do you know a gentleman by the name of Dick Shorey? Yes, I do. Yeah, he he was with Ludwig when I was with Ludwig in, in the '66, '67 time. Yeah, so I spent some time with him uh, when I was in college. He came and uh, and we did some of his some of his work and uh, or some of his pieces. And so he was the guy that was responsible for Buddy Rich leaving Ludwig and going to Slingerland. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they because he wanted him to pay him twenty five thousand dollars a year to play Ludwig, and he told him to stick it up his ass. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well. 
<laughs> I guess I guess Slingerland paid him though. Oh yeah, well people pay that much now. Man. So what kind of kit do you play? Do you play a DW? DW. I've been with DW since they started. Man, Nick oh, Stroll. I had their first two drum sets, 1980. Hmm. So what do you use? A 18, 18 or a 20? No, 20. I, 20. I don't like 18s because no. uh, if you look on when, when I, on the DVD, you'll see uh, my bass drum beater is above the center of the drum. That's mm-hmm. the deadest part of the drum, you know. Right. Why people don't use it on a timpani. Uh, not that you can compare a bass drum to a timpani. But, um, so it's it's above there. So, uh, oh, man, what are we saying? Jesus, mm-hmm. so much stuff going on. What are we talking about? The bass drum beater? The beater, yeah, I have, I have it, like, higher, you know. Uh, and... Um, we were saying, talking something about the bass drum pedal. Oh, I've lost it. About <laughs> all the stuff that's on there. And... Well, yeah, there's nothing on there. You know, it's just a plain old pedal. Right. And people are all interested in what pedal it is. It's just a... Just a regular old pedal. The old DW pedal. Oh, yeah, I was talking about the, the drums. Nick Sorley and I were the first two endorsees with Camco in 1963. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went with Ludwig in 66 because I was with George Shearing. We were on the road. And Bob Yeager at the Pro Drum Shop, who got me the right bass drum control, he, he used to, like, control my drum company thing. He said, now you go with Ludwig. So he told Ludwig, Colin Bailey's coming with you. Send him two sets of drums. <laughs> nice. So they did. Yeah, he was that influential. And uh, then uh, everybody went with Pearl in 72, which I did. Mm-hmm. And I played with their drums till I went with Don. 79 and they made their first drums in 1980 they sent me a strange setup uh 20 by 16 bass drum 13 by 9 mounted drum whatever you call them now tom tom <laughs> and 14 by 14 floor tom i mean totally the oddest size drum right right <laughs> what sizes do you play now you said you play a 20 inch bass well, yeah i just play the regular old stuff 8 by 12 14 by 14 20 by 14 bass drum. Mm-hmm. And I have, a, I have a really great snare drum. It's a f- six and a half inch brass snare drum, which was made from, from by DW for me. And uh, I got I got a new set what, four or five years ago. I had a new drum with it. But I, I couldn't play on it. I had to get my old drum. <laughs> I've had it for years. I played on one of the NAMM show, God, 15 years ago at least, uh, maybe more. And uh, I was in the Sabian booth, you know, and they had a DW set. And, uh, man, I'm really ranting on, aren't I? No, we're talking gear. (laughs) So I play on this drum. I think, Jesus, the stick seemed to fly off it. You know, so I've got to get one of those. So Don, you know, got me one, and I um, took it on the road. I was on the road with Jesus. Like a, anyway, the, the the airline smashed my uh, trap case and uh, ruined that drum. So you know, I got another one. Uh, that the first one was the best one, actually. It's always the case, isn't it? And then you get another yeah. one. I have a drum now that it sounded great for years and years and years, and now it just doesn't sound good anymore. I I've two, yeah. I've changed the heads, I changed the hoops, I've changed you know everything I could possibly. I changed the strainer on it. Everything it just doesn't sound good anymore. So. Yeah. Time to get rid of it. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Get yeah. another one. So, and what do you, what symbols do you play? Do you play? Uh, I play. I went with Istanbul Mehmet. Istanbul. Yep. I love their symbols. I like dark dark symbols. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah, me too. I like dark symbols. Uh, and they have dark symbols. I, I go to their warehouse every time I go down to LA and get some different symbols. They're a lovely company, you know. Mm-hmm. And Pam Gore is the, the 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 lady in charge in LA, and she's really sweet. And uh, so I'm very happy with those. Uh, I was with Sabian for 25 years, uh, and they were great to me. They really were. I, I always gave me if, if I asked for something. Right. Uh, but uh, I, I, at the NAMM show two years ago, I went by their, you know, their booth, whatever you call it, mm-hmm. and I started playing these symbols. I was like, Jesus, this is just what I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. That's what you, you know, need. Mel Lewis symbols, you know. Right. Uh, you know who Mel Lewis was, right? What's that? Do you know who Mel Lewis was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay. <laughs> you're, you're a young guy, Mel. 
Mel was a big influence on me with big bands. I mean, I I'm I'm a young guy, but I listen to most of the stuff that I listen to is from years ago. So that's, that's great. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you'll find some albums with me that were made years ago. <laughs> Yeah, now I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do. Uh, I already I did a lot of research on you, but I'm gonna do more. So you know, I'm definitely gonna check out some more records of yours. Yeah. So anyway, the you know, symbols I I use uh, 14 hi hats, like a flat bottom with the with the holes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have so many different symbols. I keep changing them around. I, I've got a, a 21 right now. Zier. Uh, so they have the weirdest names, you know. I like it, you know, and then I have a 21, very dark ride, and I have a really great China symbol with rivets in this, the best one I've ever had, I <laughs> love it, and uh, that's that, but I have other symbols, you know, I have some 21 inch or 22 inch uh, ride symbols, mm-hmm. I have some other, t- a couple of 20 inch so I, I have so much different symbols to choose from. Variety is the spice of life, my friend. It is. Yeah, I like to change it around a bit. Yep, yep me too. So, uh, Well, good deal. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about you, they can just go to colinbailey.com, right? Yeah. And all your information is on there. Your yes. Your books, your DVDs, all that stuff, they can access it through yeah. that. Yeah, there's clips of the DVD on my website, you know, and, and of uh, – uh, me playing. We did, uh, when I did the um, uh, did the DVD. Donald Barney said he wanted me to do a trio, a couple of trio things, or a few trio things at the end of it. So I was down there in LA once. It was probably two or three years after the uh, after I did the DVD, and um, well, I did the, the filming for it. Mm-hmm. it. Was before it was released, and uh, there were two great players. A DW at the time playing with somebody else, a singer. They had some, they have so many visitors from all over the world. Oh, I know, I know. And they had like an entertainment thing. They had some chick singer and there were these guys, John Chiodini on guitar, who I'd never met before. A great guitar player. And, and Jim Hewart, who I'd played with for years with Joe Pass and, and other people in LA. We, you know, we're still great friends. Uh, and uh, so, anyway. Don said, I want you to do some tunes after all this shit's over, you know, with the party thing. So we stayed and uh, we just, they didn't want any, any melodies because of the, you know, the, uh, the royalty thing. Mm-hmm. So we just, you know, did, did a couple of blues things and changes on Satin Doll. And I did a thing with the hands. and you know. So we did it all like boom, 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 you know, like. Right off the cuff. And- yeah, and it turned out really well, you know. Awesome. We did, but when you get good players together, man, you, you got to, unless they're really, really different styles, but, you know, we were like beboppers, you know. Right. So it's easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm playing with good players. Jesus. Yep. Yeah, I got out to L.A. and played with various guys. A guitar player named John Pisano, who was with Joe Pass all those years, who mm-hmm. was playing. And he has a guitar that has been on for like 15 years or more. And I go down there and play that, you know, once in a while. Of course, nothing this past year, like I said, because right. I'm recovery. So you will be getting out to play again soon, though, right? Oh, yeah, a couple more months. I should be really ready. Good. That's when, good to hear. Yeah, it is for me. So where are you're not in L.A. Where are you at? I live just outside of San Francisco. Oh, okay. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking you were in the L.A. area. Just well, because. I was. I was there right. for many years. I got uh, you. I left there in 1979. I was um, offered this post at North Texas State University. And uh, Steve Houghton, the drummer, was doing all mm-hmm. the studio work down there. He was coming to L.A., going to L.A. So this friend of mine I didn't know for Christ knows how many years, he was one of the top arrangers down there. He did a lot of jingles and, you know, he said, why don't you move down here, man? You know, I got a lot, lot, lot of work. So I did, you know. And right. It was not bad for a couple of years, and it started to get on my nerves. Mm-hmm. Y'all come back now here, all that shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a nice day here. <laughs> Tell me have a nice day. <laughs> so uh, that then, you know, I moved back. I met, I met some guys. I was a saxophone player named Richie Cole. I met through a bass player from Denver. He was coming down to play with me in, in his club in, in Dallas. 
And uh, I started going on the road with Richie Cole, and the piano player named Dick Hyman was a great piano player. He lives in San Francisco. So uh, I came back to San Francisco and I left Texas and uh, came here because I didn't really want to go to LA anymore. I wish I had actually in hindsight. Yeah. But uh, this is a nice place to live, you know, where I live is really nice. Good. So I live outside, you know, outside in the, in the sticks. <laughs> right. That's what I, I like that. I live in I live in New York, but it's uh you know, I like being I like the country as well. So Yeah, yeah. I used to love to go and play in New York, man. You have to be on your on your top of the of the vanguard, you know, the fans that go in there though. <laughs> oh, I know. They know what it's supposed to be like, you know. Right. And uh yeah, you're not pulling anything over anybody's eyes there. Yeah. I, I remember playing it with Richie Cole uh, in 1983. I remember the years and everything. You know? And uh, I've been talking about, I like to play a solo on a ballad, you know. So he started playing uh, around midnight. Mm-hmm. So he played, then Dick Hyman played, and they all just sat back. You know, it's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> I'm at the Village Vanguard, and i got to play a solo on... on I did great, by the way, because I, uh, <laughs> I have good ideas. Uh, you have to have a decent technique to do that kind of stuff. Right. I was playing with brushes, obviously. Uh, that was a trip. <laughs> I always took play- I've been in New York in quite a few years, and in 1994 was the last time I was there. Well, anytime you're here, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll take you out to lunch. Okay. Absolutely. That's a deal. That is a deal. And for all the listeners out there, be sure to check out ColinBailey.com. I'll also list all of Colin's information on DrummersResource.com so everybody can get over to his website and pick up his books. I strongly recommend it. All of his YouTube links and all that stuff are going to be on the website as well. So check it out. And Colin, thank you very, very, very much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really do appreciate it. And it's been... I'm glad we could get together finally. Me too. Me too. It was an absolute pleasure. Colin, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. So there you have it, Mr. Colin Bailey. I love listening to him tell all these stories about about working with Miles Davis and and you know touring throughout Europe and moving to the United States and everything. Such awesome stories, and definitely check out his book, Bass Drum Control, if you have never checked it out. Do yourself a favor; it'll really, really help your your bass drum technique. Check out his website, ColinBailey.com and DrummersResource.com forward slash session. 66 will have all the information on there that we talked about in the interview. So check out drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, Twitter drummer at drummers R source and Instagram at drummersresource. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.